You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where he is also the Founder and Executive Director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, and is on the core faculty at Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. In our last episode, we looked at some of the aspects of the political systems of the Roman Empire and considered how their power might have affected the formation of the church's government. This week, we are turning our attention, though, to a different angle and looking at the larger cultural context in which the church developed. While the identity of the church in its earliest stages was a distinctly Jewish experience, we see that it didn't take long before the Gentile question became one of the earliest controversies that the church had to deal with. Mark Knoll, whom I mentioned in the last episode in his book, Turning Points in Church History, notes this departure from Christianity's distinct Jewishness before the end of the first century. The first turning point he identifies is the fall of Jerusalem, in which he says, quote, Even before Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed in AD 70, Emperor Titus's observation about the mutual dependence of Christianity had become ancient history. While Christianity in its very earliest years may, in fact, have functioned like an appendage of Judaism, by the year 70, it was moving out on its own. And Dr. Haken, a couple weeks ago, as I said, we really looked at kind of the large-scale political structure of the Roman Empire, but now we want to look more to, I guess, maybe what we could call the the individual uh, identity that that people would have had this outworking collective manifestation of cultural identity. And really the first question today is quite simple, which is what did it mean to be Roman in this world of the early church? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's again, it's a question that could easily fill a book. Um, the concept of, of Romanitas uh, being Roman Um. I mean, at one level, it, it uh, being Roman distinguished you from 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 uh, barbarians. Um, you were civilized. You were the heir of of a culture that stretched back at this point uh, eight hundred years, um, and um, it was a uh, a marker that you were not a barbarian. And in some ways, uh, being a barbarian was being less than human in some ways uh, from Roman thinking. So uh, being Roman was being cultured and being civilized and being the heir of a great culture. Um, it was being, uh, a, a being a citizen in this imperial power, um, which carries all kinds of perks and privileges. Uh, and Paul, who was born in Tarsus, which was a... Anybody born in the city was automatically a citizen, um, uh, unless you were born into a, a context of slavery. Um, Paul's not slow to use those that appeal, yeah, as we see in the book of Acts a number of times, that he is a Roman citizen, and therefore he is free from um, certain types of punishment. Um, um, he's due a, 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 a proper trial, um, etc., so being Roman then um, gave you all kinds of legal privileges within the Roman Empire, but it was much more than that. It was this this sense of 
of dignity um, and being part of a much larger, um, much larger world of uh, that the gods had honored and favored. Um, it was the gods, after all, who had willed the Roman Empire, and um, so being Roman was tied up with being, uh, in in the minds of many, tied up with being um, a um, a worshipper of the Greco-Roman gods, which meant that, can you be a Christian and be a Roman? And uh, that, would be, that would be at the heart of the, of the issue um, in the second and third centuries. Can I, can I, be a, can I, can I, I, I be, stay as a Roman, yet be a Christian? And you find in a text like the letter to Diognetus, the affirmation, yes, in uh, chapter 5 of that letter, you know, he says, we, we live, we live in your towns, we eat the same food you eat, uh, we, we wear the same clothes, we speak the same language. In other words, we're Romans. But there is a difference. And he goes on to spell that difference, what that difference entails. So um, that's going to be a, a, a challenge for early Christians. So when they, when they make the, the statement, uh, ego, ego Christianus, ego sum, Christianus or sum Christianus. I am a Christian. Um, to a Roman ear, is, does that does that mean you're denying you're being a Roman? Um, therefore, you're you're outside of the pale of uh, Roman law, and we can do whatever we want to you. Um, you're basically affirming you're part of the barbarian horde uh, outside our borders. Um, you're a hater of mankind. That was a charge that Tacitus, for instance, uh, records in his uh, narration of the Great Fire of Rome, after which, uh, that was in uh, the 64 AD, after which um, there was an initial persecution in the city of Rome of a number of Christians, in which by tradition Peter died, and some would argue Paul too. Um, the Christians were accused of being haters of the human race, that is being haters of the Romans. Uh, they didn't pray to the Roman gods, therefore they must want the fall of the empire, and they must want uh, trial and trouble to come upon the Roman people. And so this, this identity of, you know, who am I? Am I part of the, the Pax Romana? Or does my being a Christian out, put me outside the pale of that? Um, and this will, this, this kind of Tension, and there is a tension here, will continue into the fourth century, uh, third and fourth and fifth centuries, when people like Augustine have to encourage, in this case, a, a general named Marcellinus, uh, to take his duties as a Roman general seriously and defend the empire. But there's tension here, and the for some Christians in the early in the early period. Um, by becoming a Christian, they somehow felt that this no longer meant that they were a Roman. So in the Acts of the Skeleton Martyrs, you have uh, one of the, the martyrs says to the Roman governor, um, I do not recognize the empire of this world. In other words, um, I'm not part of this imperial structure. I'm not a Roman. I'm a Christian. But um, I would argue that's a minority view. I think 
I think most of the early Christians are trying to trying to solve the tension. How do how do I be a good Roman and yet be faithful to Christ? Yeah, I want to circle back to the concept of citizenship later, but first you mentioned the geographical nature of the Roman Empire, just the sheer size and scope of it. And I just want to get your thoughts on what allowed for any kind of cultural identity to emerge in the ancient world over such vast expanses. Well, the Romans were, and I, I don't know whether this is a thought out policy or not, but the Romans were adept at cultural assimilation. Um, unlike the Greeks, the Greeks, the Greeks, partly because of their geographical context, the the mainland of Greece, both the the mainland and the Peloponnesus, are e enormously rugged and mountainous, and it was not easy for the Greek city states as they developed after the Greek Dark Ages, uh, circa 700 BC, uh, to establish connections to each other, and so the Greek city states grew up with a deep-seated uh, uh, spirit of autonomy. And it meant that they were fearful of strangers, despite the fact that one of the attributes of the god Zeus was exenia, uh, his um, love of hospitality, and thus the encouragement of the Greeks to be hospitable. Um, I suspect maybe one of the reasons for that was because they were not hospitable. <laughs> And thus the, the common parlance was, you know, you've got to be hospitable to fellow Greeks. Um, but you could live, for instance, in the city of Athens for, you know, your family could live in the city of Athens for four or five generations before you were accepted as an Athenian. Well, that's completely different from the Roman world. And again, maybe the topography of Rome, it develops in the, in the central Italy, where there are plains, uh, which make ease of access for contact between the Romans as they develop as a, as a city-state and other city-states in that world. Um, obviously, it also enables them to, to uh, engage in conquest, and by the, the beginning of the 3rd century BC, they've conquered the entirety of the Italian peninsula. But during that, that period of conquest, they were able to assimilate the various peoples of the Italian peninsula into the Roman world. And this becomes part and parcel of the genius of the Roman Empire, is its ability to assimilate people and uh, to give them Roman citizenship within, within the space of a generation. So, you know, various parts of the Roman world, as the early church knew it, uh, had been conquered maybe um, in one generation. The next generation, these people are all declared to be citizens. And what it gives then is it gives a stake, makes you a stakeholder makes you a stakeholder in the empire. But it comes with a cost. The cost is you have to embrace certain elements of Roman culture. So, for instance, if you're a Gaul used to wearing trousers, you now have to wear a toga. Um, it might seem to be a minor thing, but the toga for the Roman was the mark of distinction between the, a, a, a civilized person and a barbarian. Not surprisingly, in the in the late 4th century, uh, trousers are outlawed in the empire for citizens. Uh, they're only, the, only the barbarians wear them. And um, so the, the, the vast amount of territory that the Romans conquer, uh, they're able to spread their ideas of being Roman 
and uh, Roman law, Roman customs, uh, Roman religion, Roman values. And um, people embraced this because it gave them a, you know, it gave them obviously a stake in the Roman world. It enabled them to get ahead in the Roman world, but it did come at a cost. And I think you see in the, the conflict between church and state, conflict between the church and the Roman Empire in this period, I think you see something of the cost. You know, all, all we're asking you to do, they, the Roman governors would often say to, to the martyrs, all we're asking you to do is just throw a pinch of salt on the altar, the fire is on the altar to, for, the, for the sake of the emperor, to, to pray, pray to him. And the early church realized, no, we can't engage in this idolatry. From the Roman vantage point, this is this is just a civic. This is your civic duty. We don't give a hoot whether you believe in the deity of the emperor or not, or the potential deity. Uh, Romans generally did not believe that the emperor was God, but would be deified upon death. We, we don't care if you believe in the deity of the emperor or not. Just do your duty uh, to show that you're a good Roman. And so the the conflict between church and state in this world, uh, I think, shows you the conflict between, shows you where, 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 the, where the rub came from being a Roman. Uh, Roman idolatry was part and parcel of that Roman world. And um, if you refuse to engage in it, well, you weren't Roman. How did this uh, quasi-homogenized identity that came through assimilation, how did that impact the, the mission and spread of Christianity in those first centuries? Well, I think in some ways it's got a, it's, it's a fabulous illustration of the kaleidoscope of, of Christianity, the kaleidoscopic nature of the church. That is, the church is not just one ethnic body, but the early church, because it was born into a world that, where there was a multitude of cultures, yeah, granted, you know, if you went to, to, to Anatolia, what is the Anatolian highlands in what is now modern Turkey, you're going to find a fairly uniform culture. But if you go to Rome, you have a bustling metropolis of a million people where Jews are rubbing shoulders against Arabs and, you know, Gauls and Germans and Britons and um, various Mediterranean peoples. Speaking their different languages, their different uh, foods, and and so on and so on. And so this was an ideal opportunity for the church uh, to realize its message that it's kind of the mandate that's given to it in Matthew twenty-eight: uh, go to the nations and preach the gospel. And the nations are gathered in these urban centers, um, all of which the major urban centers in the Roman world are all all located pretty well next to the Mediterranean. So Alexandria. Uh, Antioch, um, Caesarea, Ephesus, uh, Athens, Constantinople, Philippi, it's a bit inland, um, Rome, Carthage. And so the, the, the earliest areas where the church develops and grows are in large urban centers right next to the Mediterranean. In other words, they're on the sea routes where merchants would ply their wares and uh, uh, trade. And where there would be coming and going, and that's the that's the world of the early church. Now, there's been a recent study that has kind of tried to challenge this, but I'm not convinced by it. I'm I'm still kind of a holding to an older view, which I think is the more solidly grounded view that the early church developed in an urban setting, 
which is quite remarkable because our Lord's ministry is in Galilee, which is a very rural environment, small little villages. And uh, the church then goes from that world to the world that the Apostle Paul knew. The Paul's an urban traveler and an urban creature and uh, constantly plying back and forth on the, the Mediterranean by boats. I mean, if you were to do a parallel today, let's say the United States, uh, be you know where, where would the church put down its deepest roots and its uh, experience its greatest growth? Well, it would be places like Boston and Atlanta and Dallas, Fort Worth and Chicago and uh, maybe Denver, um, San Francisco, the Bay Area, L.A. I mean, they're all large urban centers with airports, international airports. They're genuinely international airports. Um, as you know, we, we're both uh, linked at Southern, and uh, the airport of Southern claims to be an international airport. But <laughs> I don't think you can go anywhere internationally from that airport without having to hop somewhere. So, um, but all that, that, that's just a little comic aside. I mean, the, the, I think that's helpful to, uh, to see, you know, if, if Paul were coming to, to America, where would he, where would he go? Uh, no offense if he doesn't go to your small little town in Kansas or Kentucky or wherever, but he'd, he'd hit these large urban centers, DC, Boston, Atlanta, Chicago, Fort, Dallas, Fort Worth, um, Denver. You know the big cities on the west coast a phrase that uh you, you frequently use is the the greco-roman world could you unpack what is greco about the greco-roman world for maybe the uninitiated in our audience yeah yeah greco-roman world i i teach a course called roman hellenism and obviously the word hellenism is from uh, the greek word for the greeks described themselves as the hellenes greece was hellas um, the, we, the reason why we've got Greek is the Romans. The, Greek, the, Romans, the first Greeks the Romans ever met was in the Bay of Naples, a colony. And when they inquired as to who they were, they, they told them the, the Greeki. And from that point on, everybody was Greek. Everybody who looked like the Greeki, spoke their language, was a Greeki. Well, the, no, 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 no. The, the Greeks never called themselves that. They were Hellenes. And the word Hellenization, Hellenistic, uh, Hellenism, these are, these are words that relate to Greece. And, I mean, Greek culture, I mean, the only culture that the Romans admired beyond their own cultural tradition was that of the Greeks. And so they took over wholesale uh, the Greek uh, pantheon of gods. Uh, Zeus becomes Jupiter, and um, Hera becomes Juno, and uh, Poseidon becomes Neptune, and uh, Hades becomes Pluto, and on and on and on. Uh, but not only, well, by taking over Greek Greek religion, uh, and they didn't take all elements of it, and they did add some of their own. For instance, the god Janus, we're in the month of January. That's uh, the month of the god Janus, uh, the god who um, is the god of the door. And so when you go out of your house, you pray to him that you might come back safely and that no evil might come in while you're away. And so it's the, the January is the month uh, that opens the door onto the new year. Um, of course, they added their own elements, but by taking over Greek religion, they took over Greek mythology. Uh, they, they would add their own, obviously. The, the Aeneid is a Roman update on Homer's great uh, two works, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And they want to explain how 
a Trojan, Aeneas, ended up being the founder of Rome. It's one of the, the founding myths. They've got another one, Monius and Remus, but the Aeneid is, is kind of, if there's anything that's kind of a Bible in that world for a Roman, it's the Aeneid, and maybe Homer. Um, so by taking over the uh, Greco Greek religion, they take over Greek values and Greek culture. And um, now the Greeks weren't into togas, but uh, there is so much uh, that the, the Greeks valued. Um, again, the Romans modified. The, the Romans are much more appreciative of women than the Greeks are. So for, for Aristotle, for example, um, he has a very disturbing view of women. Women are really uh, on, uh, improperly formed men is to put it kind of bluntly. And the woman's intelligence is nowhere near for the Greeks matching that of the Roman, of the, uh, matching that of the man. Uh, the Romans have a much more, the Romans have a higher view of, of women than the Greeks do. Uh, the Greek passion, and it is a passion for homosexuality, uh, is not matched by the Romans. Um, now, and so while there are certain, while there is, I, I can think of no Greek author, pagan author, who criticizes homosexual activity, um, at least in the, in the classical Greek period, uh, there are numerous Romans that do, uh, who feel that this is, this is a Greek vice that is undermining the culture. Um, so uh, Romans do not adopt everything that they, the, Rome, the Greeks um, embraced culturally, but they do have enormous admiration. And so really what you have in the Roman culture that the early church had to deal with, it's a, it's a Roman culture laid upon a foundation of uh, Greek culture. And Greek culture is peeping through at all times or shaping the way Romans thought. But again, Romans take it in their own distinct directions. Uh, the whole world of sculpture, for example, particularly um, facial sculpture, the, 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 the sculptures that deal with the human head. Uh, the Greeks tended to be idolized forms, whereas the Romans uh, often would depict you as you were. So we have a number of the emperors that they're not too handsome. <laughs> and uh, where the Greeks would have idealized the, the facial features, the Romans are quite prepared to depict the emperor as they thought he actually looked. So there are changes, but by and large, you've got you, you could talk about Greek and Roman culture. You could talk about Roman Hellenism. It's 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 a it's a unified culture as long as one recognizes that in various parts of the empire, there's going to be you know distinctive elements peeping through. I mean, again, the Romans because they're a genius at assimilation. You know, when they go into Gaul, they they will adopt some of the Gaulish gods. Uh, likewise, in North Africa. Likewise, in Great Britain. Uh, to some degree, sorry, what becomes Great Britain? To some degree, again, they're, they're the, they, they do have problems with the Druids and Druidism. But because Druidism becomes a force for opposition to the empire. Whereas that is not true, say, in North African religion, that they encounter in, um, say, in Carthage or whatever. So we have this synthesized or appropriated Hellen, Hellenized Roman culture. What are some of the contours or results that really impact the church and the church's mission? 
Well, that's again a huge question. In other words, how does the, how does the church in its development in these early centuries deal with its surrounding culture, and to what degree does that culture shape the church, and to what degree does the church push back against the culture? So, areas in which the, the church pushes back against the culture would obviously include things like the refusal to worship the Greek the Greco Roman gods, uh, refu refusal to recognize them as gods, refusal to uh, pay obeisance to them. But it also comes in other areas. For instance, uh, Hippolytus, um, who was a Roman author in Rome, uh, early third century, writing interestingly enough in Greek, uh, the first author to write in Latin in Rome is Novatian, mid third century. Up until that point, it would appear that the church was uh, heavily, not only heavily indebted to Greek called Greek the Greek language, but also probably worshipped in Greek to a large degree. But anyway, whatever the, the case. Um, Hippolytus mentions that um, there are certain occupations that we will not allow a Christian to be. And obviously, you know, um, a priest in a Roman temple, prostitute, these sort of things are on the list. But also a teacher. You can't be a school teacher. Why is that? Because you would be required to teach Homer. And all the, in the point of view of the early church, all the silly mythology that goes along with the, the Greek, the Greek classics. Now that's very interesting, because I mean, in a lot of Christian liberal arts colleges today, you you, you get Homer, and um, Sophocles, and uh, Aristophanes, and Plato, and Aristotle, and so on. And uh, it, it's interesting when these these texts are no longer a threat to your worldview, they then can be studied and read and appreciated. Um, but in the context in which we're looking at, they were seen as threats to, to the Christian worldview. And so there are clear areas where the church would push back. Uh, gladiatorial games. Can you go and see the gladiators? You know, it's just, just a day outing. Well, no, of course you can't. You know, the idea of men and women, men killing each other for sport is, is just horrifying. Um, but there are also many areas where uh, they obviously would have embraced the culture. I mean, the, the, the uh, letters to Diognetus, chapter 5, you know, we, 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 when we uh, move among you, we, we look like you do. So they're obviously wearing togas. Um, they cut the way they cut their hair. Uh, for instance, beards are not common among Romans until the uh, second century. And I'm not sure if it's Hadrian that kind of makes the beard fashionable, but uh, beards become the fashion of the day in the second century. Uh, Jews would have worn beards, but not Romans. Romans pretended to be clean-shaven. Well, then suddenly now, you know, so what would you do, have done as a Roman Christian? In the first century, you probably wouldn't have worn a beard. In the second century, beards become fashionable. You may well have worn a beard. Uh, in other words, it's a multitude of things. I mean, again, there are certain areas where, you know, in fashion, the early church would have pushed back. Um, both Cyprian and Tullian complain about women dyeing their hair, uh, complain about women wearing makeup. Um, you know, if, if God had wanted women to have um, purple eyeshadow, uh, Tertullian says, well, well, he would have, uh, he would have made, um, would have given you purple eyes. And, you know, if, if God had wanted women to have purple hair, some of the women were dyeing their hair purple. Now, he would have had, you know, uh, purple sheep. Uh, I'm not sure how, where the logic is in that, but anyway, there's, a, there's an argument there. 
And Augustine, sorry, not Tertullian, got a long text on the, the dress of women. Uh, de cultu feminarum. You know, how, how, how should women dress and their demeanor and so on. And so there are obviously areas where the church felt, no, no, we, we have to push back. Even as today, you know, and I think the early church finds herself having to wrestle with the same things we have to wrestle with. What in our culture is acceptable? What is not acceptable? And there are certain things that are obviously the same for them as for us. But, uh, you know, like, for instance, you know, going to the gladiatorial games, is that appropriate? Well, that, that wouldn't, be, wouldn't be now if we had them. Um, but other areas, you know, there's, there's tension. And Christians sometimes came to then and now uh, different conclusions. So Basil of Caesarea has a book on the reading on the on the advice to youth on the reading of Christ, Greek literature, and um, he's trying to help young Christians think through, you know, what can I read, how should I read it, etc. Whereas for some earlier Christians, no, no, apologists, no, it's 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 it's, out, it's completely it's all outside the pale. Um. So there are tensions then in the way in which the church interacted with her culture, as there always will be. Uh, Christians are, again, the letter Diognetus puts his wealth in chapter 6. Uh, Christians are in the world, but not of the world. Yeah, and really that, that brings us full circle back to uh, another question that I, I wanted you to kind of close our time out today here with about citizenry again. You know, you had mentioned Paul um famously being a Roman citizen and using the perks that came with that. Um, are, are there any other prominent Christians, not just Christians, maybe who were in the, in the military or had political power, but prominent in society in the opening centuries of the church? Yes. Uh, Cyprian, for example, Thascius uh, Cyprianus, Cyprianus, um, he would have been a very prominent figure. He was a member of the Roman aristocracy, Clegg Quayle, um, in his letter to Donatus, book um, uh, chapter three. He describes uh, really kind of a self, kind of a, a kind of a conversion narrative that he gives, a com uh, in which he describes what it was like for him before conversion, and he describes you being a um, the equivalent of being a judge, a Roman judge. Um, and also being involved in uh, wearing a uh, Roman toga with a purple stripe and gold, in fact, gold clothing. So he comes from wealth and status, and uh, he gives it up to become a Christian and then eventually a bishop. Uh, Perpetua, uh, also North African, all through Carthaginian like Cyprian. Um, Wibia Perpetua, as we, we know both her two names, which a Roman woman normally had. And um, she clearly comes from wealth and status as well. Uh, she can read and write Greek and Latin, which is quite extraordinary. Uh, very, very, very few women could read and write, uh, probably 2% of the Roman Empire in terms of the entire population. So out of about 35 million women in the empire, there were 2% could read and write. So she, she's in a very, very unique position and becomes a Christian, much to the dismay. And it's a very poignant story, her martyrdom, because she keeps a diary account in prison. 
and much of the dismay of her father. And so, yes, there were Christians. Um, the uh, Domitian, uh, there is some supposition that a couple of his cousins in the imperial family became Christians in the 90s. Um, so, we do. Um, again, Origen in Alexandria, one of his very, uh, one of the men converted under Origen, his ministry was a man named Ambrose, Ambrosius, who was very wealthy and uh, basically employed, employed a number of tachygraphers, that is uh, shorthand writers, to take down everything Origen said. He basically paid for them. Um, and uh, this basically went through much of Origen's lifetime. Um, now, this man's a heretic, but Marcion. Marcion had an enormous amount of money that he inherited. His father was a ship owner. Um, from Pontus, and when he became when he came to Rome, he donated all the money to the church in Rome, and it was a quite a vast sum of money, which, when uh, it became apparent that Marcion was a heretic, uh, denied the the Old Testament as divine revelation, and that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ was not the same as the God of the Old Testament. When that occurred, the church gave him gave gave him, gave him all his money back. So there were there were wealthy Christians, yeah, and in fact, I think I think part of the missionary strategy of Paul, and I say this guardedly, but I think it's very apparent that this would have been needed, is that when he went into a, a town, um, after he'd be kicked out of the synagogue, he needed a base of operation. Well, where was he going to get that? Well, the only place he could get that was uh, through uh, the home of usually middle class or upper class uh, people who were being converted to the faith, like Aquila and Priscilla. Um, I, there's a study, and I wish I'd made a note of it so I could easily refer to it, but there was a study done of Aquila and Priscilla in terms of their socio-economic socio, uh, background, and uh, the author argued that they, they, had an, they had at least three homes, uh, one in Rome, one in Corinth, one in Ephesus. Now, maybe they weren't concurrently owned, but he estimated that probably because they could, they, all of them housed the church in those cities, at least in Rome, it would have been one of the various churches in Rome. It was a house church. Um, it would have had a, then a very large atrium, um, which could house maybe 40 to 80 people um, for worship. Um, that their home probably was upwards of three to 4,000 square feet. Well, that's, that's size. That's sizable. That'd be sizable for us, anybody today. I mean, the home we live in is, without the basement, 2,000 square feet. And uh, 4,000 square feet as a home, now, that would probably be one level, but it might also involve an upper story, in which case the home is bigger. So you've got, that, that's, a, that's a degree of wealth. Um, the home of John Mark, if you read the text in Acts 12 closely, it's quite apparent that there is a garden in front of the house. Very unusual. Again, a very, very small percentage. I mean, minuscule percentage of Roman homes had gardens. And that means then that if there's a garden in front of the house, the house did not abut the, the street directly and therefore probably was fairly spacious and large. And in fact, there is a good argument. It's made by um, the, the author Morrison of Who Moved the Stone. It's an older book from the 50s uh, about the resurrection. He makes the argument that the room in which Christ held the, the um, Last Supper is the same as the room that was there for Pentecost. Even if that argument does not hold, and that the, the room for Pentecost, he, 
he argues is John Mark's home. And he makes a connection to that passage in Mark where you have the, the young man fleeing naked. And he argues that that only occurs in, John, in the Gospel of Mark. That's John Mark. Um, and he's fleeing naked because he had followed Jesus from the upper room where they had the Last Supper. And that's how he makes the connection with John Mark. But all that aside, um, whoever owned that room in which the Pentecost took place, uh, it was a room that could hold 120 people. Now, it's, it's, it's an upper room. It's, it's a second story of a house. Um, that's huge. I mean, I don't, know, I don't know anybody, I don't think, who owns uh, a house that could house 120 people comfortably. Um, so you're, you're looking, again, it's, it's what, we, uh, what we have tended to do, I think, uh, for a variety of socioeconomic reasons, but also theological reasons. We've tended to view the early church through the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. And I think there's truth that the majority of the believers in the early church were not wealthy upper class patrons. But notice it says not many. It means some were. And there's no way I think you can understand the Pauline mission um, in the early church or make sense of that, that upper room in the house in Jerusalem or the way in which the early church did move in the third, second and third centuries without recognizing that there were wealthy who were converted. Otherwise, why would Paul say in, in uh, first, um, first Timothy, you know, in chapter 6, this is what you've got to say to the wealthy, or James's admonition to the wealthy. Uh, there were wealthy men and women uh, in those early congregations, um, and some of them considerably wealthy. One thing, as I said, of Cyprian. Beat is co-hosted by Caleb Anthony Neal and is produced in partnership with the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, an historical research center at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary that seeks to promote the study of Baptist history and theological reflections on its contemporary significance. For more by Dr. Haken, follow him on his substack at Historia Ecclesiastica. Links are in the description. We'll see you next time on bead.